gotcha. All right, so it's time to do the news. Welcome, and welcome to me, too. I guess I've been off for quite a few days here. So I'm a little out of rhythm. And a lot of people say to me, you know, you're not particularly polished like when you're in your groove. So, like, what difference does it make if you're out of your rhythm? And I think that's a fair question. Uh, today on the news, uh, we're going to talk about Catch-22. Not the old movie, not the old book, but the new miniseries uh, of it uh, on, I guess it's, I assume it's only one season, but who knows, uh, on Hulu. Things can just go forever. Anyway, it's on Hulu. We watched it. We're going to tell you about it. We're also going to tell you who we is in just a second. Uh, I also have to tell you that we are going to talk about a list of all of the series ever to appear on HBO ranked and whether we agree with these rankings. And we're also going to be talking about, you know, here in graduation season, apparently pretty much the most popular book gift, maybe the most popular gift that people give at all, is oh, The Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. And we're going to talk about whether it's, in fact, a charming, uh, affirming book for a graduate or some kind of Anne Randian assertion of individual power. Or both. Could be both. Uh, now, I'll tell you who we is. Chris Grosso writes for Revolver magazine. He's the author of three books. His most recent is Dead Set on Living, Making the Difficult and Beautiful Journey from Something Up to Waking Up. Uh, this is his nose debut, but he's been on the show before. And when he was on the show, I just, at the end of the show, said to Jonathan McPants, he should be on the nose. So here he is. Irene Papoulis, who was on the original first ever episode of the nose. So that's the other end of the continuum. Uh, <laughs> and continues to delight us after all these years. Teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University and amateur vampire. Um, can I just say something really quick? What? You said you were out of your rhythm. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, you know, I just had a flash to when you were on your other station yes. a long time ago and you had this whole riff about how you didn't have your mojo and you wanted your mojo back. And I, that was before I had met you and I was listening to it. I was like, oh, my God, that was so interesting. It's such good radio. And I was thinking you make an art out of being out of your rhythm. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I'll have to think about that. But we're, we're certainly going to cut that up as a promo anyway. Uh, so we're going to begin where we'll get to Catch-22. That'll be our third and final topic. We are going to begin with the aforementioned Dr. Seuss book. Um, and uh, this is all kind of apropos of a column by a book critic for The Washington Post, Ron Charles, who basically makes the argument, well, let's forget about what argument he makes. I want to hear what argument we make. So, uh, Irene Papoulos, I'm going to have you talk again as the person who teaches a writing and teaches about books. And first of all, have you ever given or received over the places you'll go? I have not. And I would never give it. I mean, it's more like something I would give to a third grade graduation, not a college graduation, you know. And I actually hadn't even read it, even though I love Dr. Seuss. Somehow I hadn't read that one. And so I read it now. And so I'm prepared to talk about it. And um, I have some differences with um, the guy, what's his name? Charles, Ron Charles. Ron Charles, yeah. And uh, but I, I do think, I do think it sort of indicates if people are giving it for college, it, it's it just kind of breaks my heart that that's that you would give a children's book like that because there's so many other better books to give a college grad. Well, one could argue that you could give them a really good children's book, but the question is, is this that? Um, so, Chris, you write books that teach people how to be spiritually uplifted and how to take the right path. You write books that could conceivably be given to somebody uh, at a graduation. So how does uh, Dr. Seuss and oh, The Places You'll Go land with you? Uh, well, I have to say I think I'm the most unqualified, even though I am a writer to answer this, because – I never graduated college. I didn't even get an associate. So I'm coming from a complete high school, 
background, <laughs> and unfortunately, I didn't get it for a high school graduation. <laughs> uh, I've never given nor received it like Irene. Um, what I appreciated about that article, though, was the fact that at the end, uh, the writer did offer, here are some books mm -hmm. that actually the graduate might read and benefit from. So, hey, if you're going to give that book as a gift, okay, but why not also give another book with it? I'm sure it's relatively inexpensive. Um, so that's well, my two cents in a nutshell. It's never gone out of hardcover, though, so it's not, yeah, yeah, it's not that inexpensive. <laughs> and actually, yeah, this, this article by Ron Charles at the end, and does a kind of a nice job of putting them in different categories. If you want to give a children's book, here are some better children's right. books. If you want to give a sort of Chris Grasso type spirituality book, here's a few of those books. Here's some <laughs> advice books. Anyway, so uh, Bill, uh, I have a lot of questions for you, including have you ever given or received, oh, the places you'll go? No, absolutely not. Like, how, are, are you now or have you ever been? No, how dare you? And I will name names. <laughs> My wife actually reminded me, I had forgotten all about this, that there have been several times when we've been in a bookstore around graduation time where I've made a sneering comment as we walked by that particular <laughs> book on display, which it which it always is. I think this is a great column by Ron Charles. And there was so much in it that I just thought really landed very, very well. He calls it the perfect book for an Ayn Rand-themed baby shower, yeah. which is such a great line. But I think is absolutely right because what he goes after is this, this libertarian fantasy that's embodied in the book of, you know, you can conquer everything and you can do it all by yourself and you don't need to rely on other people. He tells a very poignant story of his own family and how – Th that idea was such a betrayal to them because of the, you know, the issues that they suffered through with one of their children and how much it brought home to them that we do have to rely on other people. We can't just do everything all on our own. And it's such a, it's such a terrible thing to suggest to, to anyone, I think, but pr particularly to a college graduate that, you know, now you are all set to just go out and conquer the world. Be the top of the tops, right? Yeah. There, there was going to be a whole section about maybe you'll also be able to sublimate your own appetites for the greater good, but it just didn't fit with the rest of the meter, <laughs> I think. Dr. C said to quit that. So that's your real problem with it, right? It's just kind of... It's a libertarian fantasy. Yeah. And there's, there's kind of this sad image that he alludes to of a college in, – in today's economic and social political environment of a college graduate coming home and living in their parents' basement with this book on the <laughs> shelf, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. I didn't – couldn't disagree more. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, yeah. this, oh, that's yeah, excellent. I, agree. I disagree. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I went to the book. I read the article first and then I read the book online, which I hope was the actual book online. Um, and I said, come on, Ron, you know, it's just he's he's, re you know, the because I'm all for criticizing the libertarian fantasy. But I don't think that's what this book does. I think this book does exactly what I try to do as an advisor all the time, which is just kind of encourage people to 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 just like go out into the world as they are. You know, and I don't at least, you know, it, it doesn't he say I'm sorry to say so. But sadly, it's true. Bang ups and hang ups can happen to you. You get all hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly on. You'll be left in the lurch. Isn't that true? 
your gang, you know, and that's not saying you should be alone and your gang doesn't count. If your gang will fly on and leave you in the lurch, yes, that's what happens. And you can get stuck in a slump forever. And I have done that in my life many times. And so I feel like, no, it's just a beautiful image of, of you know, getting out of your slump and being, you know, warning people bad things are going to happen. You're going to have these fantasies, but they're not necessarily going to come true. Well, this is so good. I this like is exciting. It. We like it when people don't agree. Uh, <laughs> so if everybody was going to crap all over Dr. Seuss, that wasn't going to be good. I, one thing that I would say about this um, is that, and I think I reviewed this book when it came out. I was trying to find, unfortunately, they didn't digitize, I don't think, all the way back to 1990. Uh, and I also was writing like on papyrus, I think, at that time. <laughs> but um, and, but I don't remember what I said about it, although I, I, doubt I, I doubt I trashed it. I mean, because I think I, at first blush, it does seem like, you know, sort of taking all of Dr. Seuss's tropes and turning them into a graduation speech. Although, as I think about it, I think, like, it's like the, almost the only Dr. Seuss book that maybe the only Dr. Seuss book that doesn't really have a plot, right? Mostly, Dr. Seuss books are stories about things that happen. And this is just kind of this this speechy thing about what is or isn't going to happen to you. But so, but it, it still worked for you. It worked. Yeah. And by the way, <clears throat> Crap on Dr. Seuss was supposed to be the follow-up to, to Hop, Hop on Pop, Pop yeah. but they censored it. Crap on Pop, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love Hop on Pop. Oh, no, and I love um, the one, do you like my hat? No, I do not. <laughs> I forget which one. That, go, dog, go. Go, dog, go. That's my favorite. Uh, as long as we're, like, affirming our Dr. Seuss <laughs> <laughs> I will say that um, – a big favorite uh, of ours was not just One Fish, Two Fish, uh, but mm. the section where you would read to your child, look what we found <laughs> in the dark. We will take him home. We will name him Clark. He will live in our house. He will grow and grow. Will our parents like this? We don't know. <laughs> and, that, that is yes. how you have to read it. And yeah. PETA had a real problem with that because <laughs> you know, it's, but, a, it's a sentient being, Colin. So, so Chris, as the resident uplifter of people, I mean, it's an interesting question. It's like, yeah. what, what book would you buy for? First of all, you'd probably, if you were going to buy a book for a graduate and it wasn't going to be one of your books, um, it would depend a little bit on the person and the message you wanted of to course. send. But I don't know. Like, you read a lot of very inspiring books. I, I do. And quickly, I do want to say, not that I'm playing, uh, trying to play it safe, but I hear what both Bill, yourself, and Irene have said. Um, and before we move on from that, I feel like I kind of am in a way a poster boy for that book. As I said, I didn't graduate college, and yet I make my living writing books, traveling, speaking in front of thousands of people. So I really did go, you know, I followed my dreams. And I, I know that's rare, and I totally hear what Bill was saying about, especially in this day and age with college students and the, um, you know, just the hardships they face and moving back home. Um, but I think that there is an authenticity to that book. Not that I would give it again as a gift, but what book would I recommend? Uh, you're right. It would depend on the person, but my first inkling is something probably from Bukowski. Hmm. Um, oh, really? Well, that, no, that's oh, yeah. a, <laughs> <laughs> to throw that's you for not a where I opposite. thought you were going to go. <laughs> no, I, I think because I, I believe in raw and visceral <laughs> writing and uh, maybe like um, one of his, if not his final book, The uh, Last Night of the Earth Poems. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I've read that book several times. I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, so I might give that. Take that, Ken Wilber. Yes, and, which I love, but I know, you I know. know. <laughs> I'm just teasing. So, and, and Bill, I think maybe I can uh, segue in a way that wraps this up. Because, okay, so uh, maybe I, I sort of get what you and Ron Charles are saying about oh, the places you'll go. Although, to Chris's point, there's a way in which the earlier Dr. Seuss 
he kind of was the Charles Bukowski of children's book writers in the sense that, you know, if you think about what children's that literature. That was a stretch. Well, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. But, <laughs> no, but go on. Go but, on. Well, if you think about what children's literature had been, I mean, it had been kind of relentlessly sunny, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, the when you I'm just Irene and I are kind of close to being the age where, like, you know, we were among the first Dr. Seuss readers. I don't yeah, know. I forget the when these books came. So oh. when you saw these. You know, and that's a very anarchical book. You know, it's like a book about trashing your parents' <laughs> house when they're not there. It's sort of risky business, mm-hmm. the, er- mm-hmm. the early years. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something about Seuss uh, that you have to give him credit for anyway, that, which is to lead us off, in, back in those days anyway, into places where we really hadn't gone. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when my kids were little, we all, them, me, everybody, loved all the Dr. Seuss books except for this one. And this was the last one to come out before he died. So it is is an anomaly in some ways. And – you know, some some of the books, like you say, are are not sunny at all. The Lorax is a really, really dark story. Uh, and so, of course, it's also my favorite mm-hmm. of all of his books. He, he was a complicated guy himself. Theodor Geisel was a complicated guy. We think of him, you know, as kind of this um, very progressive liberal guy, but – he did World War II propaganda cartoons that were incredibly offensive to Japanese people. He supported Japanese internment. So there are some complications with Geisel beneath the surface. And so maybe this book is a little bit of an, an anomaly if it does represent a, a more kind of libertarian perspective. Or maybe, yeah, maybe really is a, a you know, an a, Ayn Rand libertarian. <laughs> so I'm being told from uh, the booth that Irene and I were not unless we were like – Captain America, Steve Rogers, frozen in an iceberg right after reading the first few Dr. Seuss books and then revived and brought back to life. We were not among the first generation of Dr. Seuss readers. But oh. we do – I do remember reading The Cat in the Hat as a child. So we, right. we remember yeah. that really clearly. Well, they yeah. just Naomi wolfed you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they Naomi Wolf. Uh, we, we're not we're not doing the Naomi Wolf. Google topic. it. We're Google not, it. Yeah, Google it. Exactly. We're not doing the Naomi. There's a lot of topics we could have done, ranging from. I mean, we had a uh, an, uh, an embarrassment of riches for topics this week, and the Naomi Wolf being but one of them, and the wonderful finish of the Scripps Howard Spelling Bee with the eight winners, which we don't have any time to get to, and and all this kind of stuff, because we kind of got obsessed. Some of us did anyway with this list that appeared on the Vulture website. It is a list uh, of all of the series that have ever uh, appeared on HBO and ranked in order of excellence from worst to best. Uh, I would hasten to add there are certain things that didn't qualify for some reason. Sharp Objects uh, and My Brilliant Friend, I guess they are not considered series. Maybe they're sort of one-off miniseries, self-contained. Thing. I don't know. I don't know why that. Well, anyway, uh, so um, Dan all the suspense, The Sopranos was number one. Uh, and after that, it gets kind of tricky. Um, so um, so where, should we, where should we start? I'm going to start with Chris. I mean, I just, I'm going to get you just any reaction sure. you want to have to the list. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it seemed to me rather... Um, Obvious with, you know, I think Sopranos number one, which I would agree with. Wire um, for me is right up there. Uh, a lot of my favorites, like Six Feet Under, I was happy to see still somewhat higher on the list. The one that I'll be discussing whenever we come to that, uh, John from Cincinnati, I was shocked that it made it as high as 29. I think it was 29. <laughs> I'm pulling it up right now. And you like um, it. Yes, and I and I like it. And I'm saying that as someone who's sincerely shocked. Um, but uh, I think the list overall... 
It's it's subjective. It's just one person's you know opinion. We we all would make our list, and I'm guessing a lot of us would have similar top you know shows in the top ten. But um, overall, I agree with a lot of it. Um, Let's just pause here about yeah. uh, just so we don't forget to do yeah. John from Cincinnati, and because I've saddled Chris with the job of <laughs> uh, of making a case. So this is I think David Milch right after Deadwood, you, right. you know right after Deadwood yeah. and right after all kinds of other great things that happened uh, on HBO, and people were looking for the next thing to watch. And people yeah. were all saying, John from Cincinnati, uh, here it comes. Right. Uh, it's going to be the next big thing. Right. Let's hear a little uh, clip. Uh, I don't know exactly that I know how to set this up. This is Peter Jason as a car salesman uh, and Austin Nichols as John Monad. And we'll just take it from there. Also, I have to know what I mean before I can have a feeling. Do I have to know that you'll understand me? Do you have to know you'll understand before you listen? 25 cars between you? Oh, you should have let me sit down before you told me. I've got that many dealerships in each of that many sectors. Brands on goddamn franchise. I got a boogie. Me. He feels you're ready for the Camino. You're offline now, country. I don't know Butchie instead. How's he for high performance? And he ain't who's worst underpowered. Intrusions. Evanescences. I'm a shepherd. Without crook or understanding, fits and stops and starts, waves and ripples and ramifications, busted knee, mother son hand jobs, Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, crosses and shoulders to bear them. On the one hand, I suspect that uh, Jonathan McNichol picked the most incoherent raving uh, cut that he could find to put Chris in the most disadvantageous pos- uh, position possible. But I also think that that might not be the case because I did watch that series and it was extraordinarily hard to figure out what people were talking about. Right. Yeah, good luck, Chris. Yes, go, and, go ahead. And I will. So, <clears throat> first of all, I was turned on to this series um, before uh, there's a, the co-writer, not David Milch, but uh, Ben uh, Nunn, who mm. is an incredible surf noir author. And my friend uh, Eben, who works over at Thrasher Magazine, turned me on to his books, uh, Tapping the Solution came out in 84. I read that. So I really was a fan of that. And of course, huge fan of Sopranos watching the finale fades to black. I'm maybe one of the five people in America that actually like cheered like that was absolutely brilliant while everyone else is breaking their TVs and <laughs> anger. And uh, and then the John from Cincinnati trailer comes on, you know, after the credits finish. And I was super excited about it. And the one thing I'll say is that this is one of the HBO series where I've only seen it once and I did not feel a need to go back. And that's not because <laughs> yeah. I didn't love it. Yeah. It's just because like Sopranos, I've easily gone through that series six times, mm-hmm. you know, six feet under five, six times it just because I still catch new things and I love it. So my case for John from Cincinnati, as I was watching it, it it is a show kind of about itself. It, mm-hmm. it's, it is. I understand why people have a hard time with it. I think one person... Uh, reviewed it as saying it was the most what-the-F HBO series of all time. Um, but I think that was, in a way, the point. It was a show that was more of an artistic and aesthetic uh, vision. The David Milchin in an interview did say that he was only given with Ben four months to mm. write it, and he feels that that did not give the show justice. But while I watched it, um, I laid aside, I don't need to be fed like the storyline. I just appreciated it. For it was the visuals. There were great storylines and ways. Like the acting was phenomenal. It was fun to see throwback, like Luke Perry and Mark Paul Gosselaar, um, amongst other great actors in it. 
Um, I don't know what else the actor who played John was in, except I saw him in The Walking Dead a few seasons. Um, but I did want to share because so I'm watching it, and to me it was a very spiritual show. It it really was. It was like kind of magical in a way, and and I just I felt good while I watched it. And I know a lot of people still to this day, what the hell is that show about? <laughs> and to me, while I was watching it, I remember with surfing being the backdrop, the waves. There's this Eastern uh, teaching that the wave is still part of the ocean, and that's a metaphor for us being part of the universe. You know, take that for whatever it is. But so I looked up the other day trying to find if David Milch ever commented on what his vision, what it meant. And I did find he had done an interview with, the, uh, with uh, Tavis Smiley. And in it, he quotes, the idea behind John from Cincinnati is that the universe is a solid system, but also a series of waves. And that man is not an individual creature, but that his essence is carried from seeming individual to seeming individual and becomes available to surfers if they aren't loaded and selfish or if they don't become addicted to the behavior of surfing itself. And I think that wow. lends itself... Yeah, you're kind of making me want to go back. Serious, <laughs> or may, are, I, you, the, you being something of a newbie to HBO, probably yeah. don't even know about I this. I never, I had never heard of, of John from Cincinnati, but yeah. I love the clip. That was that's not, that guy sounded great, yeah, and well, I love your endorsement of it. And, right. and also, can I ask what is surf noir? I never so heard of that. It's kind of just like it sounds, like you know, like, noir, but it's yeah. it's based on um, surf culture, California, whether it's Imperial Beach, Long Beach, and it's just you know, is it novels? Yes, novels. It, exactly. Yeah, wow. it's not. It's it's fiction. Um, the probably the most well known writer again is uh, Ben Nunn, N U N N, and his book Tapping the Solution, which again came out in '84, I believe. Uh, just for me, uh, it's it's a classic. Um, so thank you. You right. opened up a whole new. So arena. I, I want to swing uh, over to Bill Usman. Uh, one of the things I we saw sort what of you did there. We sort of yeah exactly. So that um, we um, we also. We're discussing, first of all, we're going to need to back up at a certain point and just kind of talk about what HBO has become, what it turned into. But since we're already doing this, uh, we did ask whether people had little darlings on the list that didn't do as well uh, as one might have hoped. And so, Bail, uh, Bail, uh, how am I doing? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Bail is a big gap. fan of True You need of that true gap blood. between your teeth. Exactly. Because yeah. that's what's so charming. So uh, Bill's a big fan of True Blood. We don't have a good clip of uh, Anna Paquin saying the name Bill. Uh, this is Instead, we have the clip of Anna Paquin saying the name of her own character, the way Bill says it. Sookie. Every sound I hear, every time the phone rings, every shadow in the corner of my eye, I think it's Bill. I keep expecting him to come through the door and say, Sookie. There you go. Good so, one. Good one. So you're, you're a fan. I love it. Yeah. I love Sookie. I love True Blood. I actually love Alan Ball. And, mm. you know, I, I, I thought Six Feet Under coming in at number 14, that's fairly high on the list. I think it should have cracked the top 10, definitely. But True Blood came in at number 55 of 74 shows. And I was outraged. I know it's pulpy. I know it's trashy. But that's really kind of the point of it. And... Uh, in addition to all of the, you know, the, the the gore and the 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 spectacle of people exploding and things of that nature, it also did do an interesting political allegory because so it's set in this small Louisiana town 
where all kinds of supernatural creatures coexist and vampires can live with humans because of the creation of this synthetic blood that they can drink instead of having to, you know, suck the life out of people. But there's this internal division amongst the vampires about assimilation versus forging their own kind of outsider status, which was I think a really great political allegory. You see protesters holding up signs that say God hates fangs. Mm. And so Alan Ball is just saying, look, look at what I'm doing here. But that really impacted for me. I thought it was a fun show. And um, it also, by the way, um, it, it started right after The Sopranos ended. And for years, it was the most watched show on HBO. Right. Uh, a couple of things about that. Um, first of all, I think the biggest problem with True Blood is seven seasons. You know, there's sort of a sweet spot. Yeah. And there's a number of shows on this list that never got the, ex- the, the exposure they deserve because they didn't go enough seasons. Uh, the um, Ladies Detective Agency being one of them that just won, ran for one season. Luck, which was this tremendous horse racing thing with Dustin Hoffman and the wonderful Kevin Dunn, ran for one season and then the horses started dying on the set and they had to shut it down. Uh, but seven seasons is a really long time too. Yeah, and, and Alan Ball was not associated with the last two. Right. And that's really where it kind of started to drop off. They probably should have stopped with the five that he actually worked on. Um, so uh, if you bought stock in Game of Thrones a month ago, uh, <laughs> your stock is fallen. <laughs> Game of Thrones <laughs> dropped to number eight after being the best thing in the world. But so, Irene, we haven't heard from you. And you were, what, six years into a relationship yeah, with I, HBO. I, I realize it was only five. Um, yeah, HBO was like the promised land that other people talked about that I never, you know, knew about. Even with the, I remember the Sopranos, everyone would talk about it, but I couldn't watch it because I didn't have HBO. But then I ended up getting DVDs, you know, and, um, my son would go to his, when he was in high school, he'd go to his friend's house to watch True Blood once a week. And it'd be like, what is, oh, some vampire movie. I don't know. You know, and that's all I knew about it. And then I heard that it was much more interesting than, than I had realized. And, um, one of the, but one of the ones that I got, and so I got other some other ones only on DVDs, and one of them was In Treatment. So can I talk about that? You can talk about In Treatment, yes. Yeah. I just loved that show, and it was very different from Moat. You loved it, too. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. bummed. Yeah, I'll give a canceled. triple endorsement of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that first season, and it's like, how often you know, do you get to be to participate in a therapy session yeah. with somebody else? Mm-hmm. And that's what the whole show is just about, you know? Even though you're going like, wait a minute, it doesn't exactly work like that in real therapy because <laughs> it's sort of you know but um the characters were so great yeah. especially the first season i yeah. thought you know just blair underwood and you know it was just it was it, it was just so and it that's it wasn't like a story in the usual sense it was really each person sitting there with their therapist talking yeah. you know just All wonderful right. we're gonna unfortunately have to wrap this up although i do want to say just very quickly that uh one reason to do a list like this is at&t is now kind of taking over uh hbo richard plepler was one of the people who drove a lot of the very creative decisions i mean alan ball was interviewed in the new yorker one time saying that uh when he went to hbo he i think he went and presented something more kind of commercial and they said we don't want to see that we want to see the thing that you don't think anybody would do that's mm-hmm. that th- that's the thing we want to see uh, and they kind of specialized in that and uh, even though the president of AT&T Connecticut got on Twitter today to tell me that they certainly are not going to mess up HBO I think a lot of people have worries that the, they're going to sand some of the edges off of what HBO has been so far so time will tell uh, we've got to take a break so we'll have
have time to talk about something that's on Hulu, uh, and that's Catch-22. Just about as solitary as anyone could be. Of course, my life is not so merry, but that's all right with me. No love, no nothing until my baby. That's uh, Rosemary Clooney singing a song from uh, World War II. Her nephew, George Clooney, has been hev- very heavily involved in and was originally planned as the kind of one of the big lead characters for ca- this revival of Catch-22 on Hulu. Her granddaughter actually plays a, a fairly symp- a sympathetic nurse uh, also. And so the Cloonies have been very involved all the way through Catch-22. We all saw this. Uh, it's a revival. I don't know, reboot. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, it, it takes uh, the original Joseph Heller novel and the Mike Nichols movie and chops it up uh, into multiple segments uh, with a new cast of young faces. Uh, and so we've all uh, seen either all or some of it. Um, I think I'm just going to go around the table and see uh, how people are, are feeling in general uh, about it. So I'll start with you, Billy Usman. How did this land for you? It lands. Well, we should say that you did the big deep dive, right? Yeah. I, I did the big deep dive. Um, I went back to the novel. I rewatched the film. So this is, you know, the third iteration of it in a different medium. I think for the most part, it landed pretty well. I'll, I, I do feel really comfortable endorsing it. I do think it's worth watching with a caveat, which is that <sighs> – and maybe this is unfair, but for me, the novel, Catch-22, is such a supreme achievement that the film fell short, although I think the film has been underrated. I think the film is better than, for the most part, it was received. Um, and then and then this, as a show, also falls short. But maybe, I don't, I don't know if it's fair to critique it from that perspective, but I, I, I'll tell one kind of specific thing about what I what I think the problem with it is in this iteration as a as a television series, the book is extremely subversive, and it's it's written in this postmodern kind of structure, um, and it at least the first two thirds, maybe the first three quarters of the book are unbelievably funny laugh out loud funny heller's writing his sentences uh, the 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 dark humor that he evokes i don't think has translated to this newest iteration i mean there are some elements of it of course because they try they try yeah there's yeah. some of the same scenes uh-huh. but i don't think it, it 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 comes through and because of that i don't think it's as much of a critique of not just war, but of all the structures and systems that bring us to war as the novel was. Again, I don't know if that's a fair comparison, and I do think it's worth watching, 
But for me, it was that was always a constant battle as I was watching it in comparison to going back to the book. Um, before we go to Chris and Irene, uh, let's hear a little clip from the movie. This is Christopher Abbott, who has uh, supplanted Alan Arkin as the main character, Yossarian. He's talking to the actor Grant Hesloff, who plays Doc Danica. Is Orr crazy? Oh, he sure is. Can you ground him? I sure can, but first he has to ask me to. And why doesn't he ask you? Because he's crazy. He'd have to be crazy to want to keep flying combat missions. Sure, I can ground Orr, but first he has to ask me to. And that's all he has to do to be grounded? That's it, just let him ask. And then you can ground him? No, then I can't ground him. Why not? Catch-22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. Catch-22 specifies that a concern for one's own safety in the face of danger, real and immediate, is the process of a rational mind. What? Orr's crazy. And therefore, he can get out of flying combat missions. All he has to do is ask. But as soon as he asks, he's no longer crazy, and so he has to fly more missions. What? Orr would be crazy to want to fly more missions and sane if he didn't. But if he's sane, then he has to fly them. If he flies them, then he's crazy, and so he doesn't have to. But if he doesn't want to, then he's sane, and so he has to. That's some catch, that catch-22. It's the best there is. I should say that Grant Heslov, uh, who plays the doctor in that scene, is along with George Clooney, one of the two uh, showrunners and directors uh, on this project. Um, so anyway, there's, there's the premise. There's the title. So uh, Chris, uh, tell me about how Catch-22 was for you. So I'm about to lose any credibility as an author in saying that I never read Catch-22. <laughs> I will You're not say, alone. OK. I will say after seeing this series, I did not see the movie either. Um, I do intend to go and read it. I am not, I've become more of a fiction reader in li- later on in life. I think like the only old war book I'd read was Johnny Got His Gun, which I loved. Um, that said, I came into this series not knowing uh, its background, not knowing what it was about. Um, I honestly probably would not have watched it had I not known that's what we were discussing today. But so I watch episode one. Eh. You know, uh, there was one scene with uh, Clooney and the stenographer that I laughed out loud at, and that gave me the sense of, okay, like, here's the the kind of comic part. As the series goes on, you know, no spoilers, but what I found um, that I enjoyed about it was the dramatic or the gory scenes that happen, even though they're very obvious, you know that they're coming, I still felt moved by them. Like, you know, again, I won't say any of them and spoil them, but still when something happened and was graphic, I still like, you know, my I was caught aghast from it. I was like, whoa, you know, and um, not You should say ju- that something happened is a different Joseph Heller book, but anyway. <laughs> okay, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so it, not that any of it was jaw, jaw dropping, but I'm glad that I watched it. I felt as like episode two, three, four, like it for me, it engaged me. It kept me. I finished the series on Wednesday, I believe, um, and I'm glad that I watched it. I like George Clooney. I like um, what's his name that took over Kyle? Is it uh, Kyle? Uh, Kyle, oh, Chandler. Kyle Chandler. Kyle Chandler, yeah. and then Coach uh, Taylor. Coach That's, Taylor. Exactly. I was gonna say the the Friday Night Lights guy. It's the like same him. character, just a little rougher around uh, yeah, the yeah. edges. Right. Yeah. yeah. The whole scene about um, why didn't we bomb this area, and then the guy. That's the Vatican. Like, <laughs> very funny. And then, of course, uh, Hugh Laurie, I believe, yeah. uh, House. Mm-hmm. I like him. So 
great cast. I thought yep. the acting was very well done. Yep. And uh, overall, uh, I would recommend it. But again, that's based on the fact that I have not read the book or seen the other movie. All right. Before Irene goes, uh, let's actually play the clip that made uh, Chris laugh. Uh, it's George Clooney showing up, showing off some of the kind of comic timing that I think he's picked up on the sets of Coen Brother movies. But here we go. Are you mentally retarded, son? No, sir. I'm just innocent. I'm innocent until proven guilty. Says who? Everyone, sir. The Bill of Rights, the yeah. Declaration of Independence. You believe all Indo- that crap? Yes, sir. I'm a free citizen in a free country. I have certain you rights. You are nothing of the kind. You are a prisoner in my dock. So you stand here and you keep your mouth shut. Yes, sir. Now, what did you mean when you said that we couldn't punish you? When, sir? I'm asking you the questions you're answering. Yes, sir. You think I- we brought you here so that... You could ask me questions and I would answer them? No, sir. Then what the hell did you mean when you said that we could not punish you? I'm sorry, sir. I never said that you couldn't punish me. Now you're telling us when you did say it. I'm asking you to tell us when you didn't say it. When didn't you say we couldn't punish you? I always didn't say you couldn't punish me. That's a bare-faced lie! You whispered that we couldn't punish you to that dumb son of a bitch standing right there! Oh, no, sir. I whispered to him that you couldn't find me guilty. Well, I must be stupid because the distinction escapes me! Well, you're a windy son of a bitch, aren't you? No, sir. No, sir. You're calling me a liar now? No, sir. No what, sir? No what? No. What, sir? Read me back the last line. Read me back the last line. Not my last line, somebody else's. Read me back the last line. That's my last line again. Oh, no, sir, that's my last line. I read it to you just a moment ago. All right. Okay, so it does great. retain a lot of the dark humor, <laughs> I have to admit. It. So Not yeah. as much, but... Yeah. So we haven't heard from Irene. Yeah. I sh- we should say that, um, and there's a term on the nose called the Papulian through line. One Papulian through line is that uh, Charles Abbott, who actually has taken over the role of Yossarian, uh, was in uh, the uh, HBO comedy Girls and dropped out after, an ep- after a season or two because he thought he was going to move on to better things. Uh, and a lot of people thought that maybe he had underrated Girls, as did that list, which put, which put Girls at 26. Anyway, uh, let's talk about uh, your reaction. He, he did a great job in this. Really, really, yeah. really, really good job. But um, something that uh, Bill said helped me help me understand my own my own reaction to this, which is the idea that it wasn't as funny as it, as it was in the book. And, and I'm going to make another connection to HBO because I'm thinking that, you know, when it came out, it's kind of it was kind of like you know, when abstract expressionism came out, it was just like breaking all the rules and it was so amazing and everybody couldn't believe it. But now, you know, 50 years later, more than 50 years, 60, 70 years later, it's just not as interesting for people to just put splotches of things on the paint canvas, you know. And so it's the same with the kind of the kind of critique, you know, because I was thinking in the age of Veep, you know, it's like we understand why everything is absurd. You know, like our whole so much of our art forms are about why the absurdity of life, the absurdity of rules, the absurdity of war, the absurdity of all this stuff. And that was really sharp and funny. And he made it really, really sharp and funny in the book. But now it sort of feels like. Yeah, yeah, we know. We know. You know, we know we know that it's absurd, you know, so that the absurdity just doesn't dig into us in the way that maybe that it used to. I think that's a really great point. That is that is a really, really great point. And I, I think you're absolutely right that it has something to do with the 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 ensuing years. I also think it might have something to do with the different media that are used as well. The language in the book just is so much more in your face because you you don't have all the other the, the sound and the visuals that of course are there in yeah in the that's true but I think maybe even the book now would you know if this book had come out now it would have a different kind maybe. of you know yeah. we've everybody's seen Veep you know like we've seen all these kinds of 
Um, at the same time, I, so I was just, I was, first of all, thinking George Clooney must have had so much fun with that scene that we just heard, you know, because it was fun yeah. for him to do and, you know, like the pacing of it and everything. But the whole scene of it, the way they, the way they reproduce the era is beautiful. You know, yes. I think the whole visual of the show is really like the bathing suits that the guys wear, yeah. you know, those 50s. Like I have a photograph of my father in a bathing suit just like that, lounging on the beach, you know, like the, the really short, short bathing suits and like these tableaux of these young men in the war just kind of like hanging out you know there's so there's a lot of beautiful th I found mm -hmm. there's a lot of beautiful things about it but I feel like the sort of message or impact you know of it was sort of left didn't really do much for me uh, one thing that I would say about it um, is that uh, first of all I think Charles Abbott uh, it proves that he can carry something like this uh, and and he's a, yeah. he's but he's very very different from Alan Arkin and there's almost mm. He's very handsome, and with his uh, uh, officer's cap cocked a certain way, he kind of almost looks a little bit like Brando. Uh, and he has a kind of kind of cloudy, emotional state that he's in a lot of the time. Um, and Mike Nichols tends to make emotional things cerebral. This, I, I thought Christopher Abbott managed to make this thing, um, Chris, kind of more emotional. I mean, you're, you're dwelling with him and his emotions. Mm. Uh, he's bumping yes. up against this bureaucratic absurdity. But when he's not doing that, I think you see an emotionally kind of real presence there. Yeah, and the camera's just on his face. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, I, you know, and I was like, who is that guy, the guy in the... Um uh, brothel. Mm -hmm. It was Giancarlo oh, Giannini. Giannini. Yeah. I was like, wow, yeah. you know. So it's really interesting that he popped up in there and he did a great job. All right. So uh, well, let's get one more comment because uh, 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 I actually yeah, I was throwing that at you. I mean, talk a little bit uh, this Chris, not Chris Abbott, sure. uh, about uh, about how it worked emotionally for you. Yeah. Well, that's I think where the strongest connection came for me. I appreciated the humor, but there was for me a real connection. This yo-yo the main character you know trying to get out of war and it's like everything he does it's more missions more missions and then you know when people end up dying that's not a spoiler but um the the way the show takes such a churn it's it's seamless to me it, i experienced it as such at least and i really felt deeply you know the character's pain and especially in the last episode um, again, I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, he, he's covered in blood and, and naked and just this face, and it was so well portrayed, and I really, similar to Bukowski, like, I felt the raw, visceral, you know, it was like I could feel what he was experiencing, and at the same time, it was like he almost seemed dead inside, and, but in a hauntingly beautiful portrayal, so that, you know, I really did, that was for me, the most important connection was that I felt something. Because if I'm watching something and I don't feel something, then what's the point? All right. We're going to yeah. wrap up here. We'll, so we have time for endorsements. So let's do that. Uh, we'll come back. We've been talking about Catch-22 on Hulu. You probably get one of those free trial things. Watch it and squeeze in the second season of Handmaid's Tale, too. Massachusetts, only place for me, Massachusetts. Catch-22 is also what Bill de Blasio has to do if he wants to be the Democratic nominee. That feels like a dad joke. Did I just make a dad joke? I worry about that all day. Today's show was produced by Dad McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Martin Balsam. We'll be back on Monday, scrambling after the weekend's news. 
And now, back to Colin. And now it's time to make recommendations, endorsements, uh, things like that. So we'll start with Bill Usman. What have you got for us? Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to endorse something that I haven't seen yet because it just uh, premieres tonight on Netflix. But with the people involved mm-hmm. and the story it's telling— Know where you're going. I think it's—I'm I, I, I'm pretty confident about this. If, if, it, if it falls flat, you can bring me back on and humiliate me. Um, Ava DuVernay, um, who— has been very successful except for um, A Wrinkle in Time, but in terms of the other work that she's doing, has taken on the story of the Central Park Five, which is a very, very important part of recent American history. And so the new it's a dramatic telling of, of the story of, of these young men called When They See Us. It debuts on Netflix tonight, and I... I'm I'm pretty confident that it's going to be worth seeing and and very powerful. Things that I've already seen, there's a Ken and he worked with his daughter Sarah Burns documentary about the Central Park 5 which then also mm-hmm. was turned into a book. So that's 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 the that's the um the the, the nonfiction uh part of the story and then I think it'll be very interesting to see what Ava DuVernay does with turning it into a dramatic story. All right. Uh, Irene Papoulos, we'll have you go next. Okay. Um, well, I, is Chernobyl on HBO? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. So I heard Virginia Heffernan endorse it, and I would have thought, I never would have wanted to see something about Chernobyl, but I started watching it, and I thought it was fantastic, even mm-hmm. if you're not really in the mood to, because you know how horrible it was and everything. It was, it's, it was, I thought it was really good. I love the Flamingo Kid at Hartford Stage also. I endorse that heartily. It's a great, uh, it's a fun escape musical. Um, but I really want to endorse Mahler's Fifth Symphony and Beethoven's Triple Concerto because I've been listening to them all week in preparation to going to the Hartford Symphony. And I and I just want to endorse listening to the music, to classical music before you go to a concert and listen to it. And especially if it's Carolyn Kwan conducting because it's just going to be so great. Yes, Carolyn Kwan will be conducting that uh, symphony this weekend. Uh, Chris Grosser, what have you got for us? Yeah, well, with this being my first nose appearance, I wanted to sound intelligent. So I was going to say like Chernobyl, which absolutely it's it's terrifying but brilliant. Or then I was thinking American Gods or Twin Peaks. And I'm going to keep it real. Cobra Kai. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> heard of it. I am dead serious. I love the Karate Kid. Cobra Kai picks up, you know, X amount of years later. Daniel is a grown-up and Johnny's grown-up. And it's on YouTube. I seriously went into it thinking this is going to be corny, but I've got to see what it's all about. I love the Karate Kid. Two seasons, and I absolutely loved both of them. The writing is sincerely good. It You get to follow, if you're a fan of The Karate Kid, you know, the trajectory of their lives changed. Johnny's this tragic alcoholic figure trying to get his life back together. Sincerely, it's a legit good show. It has it, its faults, but... There was a nose on it, yeah, wasn't we, there? Yeah, we did a oh, nose did on, on the first season, yeah. Damn it, I missed uh, it. But, well, uh, well it, was, it was during the first season, so uh, I haven't seconds. seen the second season yet. Uh, I, and now Only you're making me better. want to see it. Only got better. You're going to make me... I really loved it, I, and I love... The, the guy who plays the, you know, the blonde guy. Who's, he's just terrific. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Um, Season two is great. All right. So I just got back from New York. Uh, and so I'm going to, in particular, uh, endorse uh, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, uh, which is uh, by Taylor Mack. Uh, it stars Nathan Lane, uh, Christine Nielsen, and Julie White. Um, it, it is a tremendous, interesting, troubling, 
hilarious show. Uh, but I've also been looking at the, at the box office grosses. I'd say it's also in a little bit of trouble. Like if it doesn't win a, a bunch of Tonys at the Tony Awards, which are on June 9th, just about 10 days from now, uh, it is going to probably have to close. Uh, but it, it really is a, a great show. We saw three shows uh, in New York. We saw The Prom, which is also up for a bunch of Tonys. Then we went downtown and saw something called Original Sound, which is all about something that we've covered a lot on this show. It's sort of about who owns the rights to certain bits of music and how do people collaborate, particularly if they're borrowing other people's uh, music, stuff like that. So, um, And all three of those shows are terrific. But uh, Gary Needs You, and it really is a show like no other show. I don't have uh, any time to describe it, I guess. And the other thing I would quickly say, because I've got a little few seconds here, is uh, don't be afraid to try the TKTS booth. I know it looks kind of intimidating. First of all, you should know there's two other TK. There's not just the one at Times Square. There's one down at the Seaport, uh, and there's one up by Lincoln Center. Uh, and they all have basically the same tickets. So if you're scared of the line at Times Square, you should also know that there's a Plays Express for just uh, people who are not interested in seeing musicals. It's a really short line that goes up to one window. Uh, and so get in that line if you're not interested in seeing a musical. When you go to TKTS, um, always have two plays in mind because if you get up there and there are no seats or no good seats to All My Sons and you don't have any idea of anything else you want to see, you, you have, in fact, wasted a lot of time standing out there in the sun. So, But it's a great, you know, I mean, Broadway's really expensive. It's so expensive. And TKTS and some of the other discount methods can, can cut that way down for you. So I want you to feel as though you can. All right. So uh, thanks uh, very much to our terrific panel, Bill Usman, Irene Papoulos, and making his stellar debut, Chris Grosso. Uh, and we're going to go out with a song by Leon Redbone, who I died earlier this week.